1: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Dante Stewart. Dante is a writer, speaker, and recent author of Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Mayada. Mayada is a singer-songwriter from Minneapolis. You can get connected with Dante and Mayada and their work in the links in the episode description. Today we have Dante Stewart, and Dante, you're not only a student, you're not only a father, but you're also a husband, and uh, you do so many incredible things in the world, and you recently wrote probably the best thing you've ever written in your entire life, and you've written lots of cool shit in your life, Uh, but you wrote a book called Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. I'm telling you what, Dante, this should be added to the biblical canon. It's that good of an epistle. (laughs)
0: hey that's fire bro i do believe god is still speaking so that's right i'm not opposed to it
1: with all that said who is dante stewart dante stewart
0: bro it's literally what i'm writing at this very moment (laughs) you know y'all know if you're supposed to be writing things during podcasts uh but this this our conversations are so laid back that i can i can do this that's right so so for me man I, i i write this thing down every single day like You know, what is the person I want to become going to accomplish today? Just simply today. Simple questions that help me kind of ground myself. Um, But also it grounds me, but also grows me. So it gives me avenues to think about who do I want to become. So I'm a husband. I'm a father. I want to be somebody who's healthy and fit. I want to be somebody who's a writer, somebody who's a pastor, scholar. I mean, pastor, leader and student scholar. So that's Dante Stewart. Dante Stewart is somebody uh, who's trying to ever increase ground myself in these areas of being healthy and fit husband and father writer pastor leader student scholar uh, who's also trying to grow in those areas so that's me that's mm. me and trying and trying in some sense to be as a uh, tony k Mabar say she says you got to make it up in your mind to strive toward your future sane and whole mm. and so i want to i want to make sure that as i'm doing all of that you know that i'm that i'm well um in the midst of it love that that's a word so this book is a deeply personal memoir.
1: I'm sure as you were writing it, lots of things came up. What did you learn about yourself
0: as you wrote it? Great question. I, I learned, bro, that you know, it's always hard to answer this question because there's so many facets of yourself that you learn about when you write something like this. But I learned in some sense that I was more courageous than, than, I, than, I, ever, than I ever thought I could have been. Mm um so many areas of my life took so much courage to write about um whether you're talking about me trying to make sense of leaving and journeying and then returning home if we think about stories uh and narratives uh we we're always in some sense at home if we think about metaphors um for our journey and our life and our growth uh we're we're always at home we're always leaving we're always journeying and returning and trying to find home again. Yeah, that's 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 probably what I learned the most is that I was most courageous, more courageous than I thought I was, in being able to capture that story. Um, but another thing I found out was, you know, that I actually was worse than I ever thought I could be. <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, when when I had to go back to my journals, I I, I, I went back and and, and there were areas of myself that was revelation. Of who I was and who i had become in those various moments, and and I had to lay it all out on the table. You know, I, I there were moments that I didn't lay everything out just because you know I can't. I, it's life. You don't give away all you know who you are as the Monte Perry. You don't give away all the secrets to liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were areas where I kind of held back, but the things that I did share, I felt like you know was revelation of the type of person I become in the worst of mm-hmm. ways. Um, so that's another thing that I learned. But I also learned, bro, that I have really grown as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, I have grown as a writer. I've grown as a crafter and and the multitudes and the multiple voices that I hold within my own mind, within my own hands. I've been practicing. and Actually, my practice work is getting better at being a writer. So that's another thing that I learned is that I, you know, that I was, you know, courageous. Uh, That was terrible. But then also on the other side of this story that I actually can do a really decent job at capturing the stories in in creative, honest, vulnerable and compelling ways.
1: Yeah, that was one of the first things that stood out to me was just how well you craft these stories in in the book. Thank you, bro. Incredible. Thank you. So you grew up in Black Pentecostalism in the South. Yes, sir. What did you learn theologically from the Black Pentecostalism in which you grew up? that still shapes who you are today theologically yeah
0: bro my my pentecostal upbringing is it really it is is kind of the root of my orientation toward the world you know i'm i'd like to tell people when whenever they talk about you know cuz i'm in ministry you know and whenever people talk talk about church and where i'm at and i'm 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 in i'm in a progressive baptist church black baptist church a part of the progressive national baptist convention and i i am baptist by affiliation uh, and denomination, but I'm very much Pentecostal uh, in my orientation. Mm. So one of the things that, that, that Pentecostalism has taught me, especially as I think about Sean Crawley, and he talks about black Pentecostalism.
1: I've had him on my podcast, by the way. Incredible book. Everybody should check that episode out and that
0: book. Yes, Ashawn is brilliant. Uh, one of the things I, I learned is that that black flesh, the body, the black body, matters. Mm. Um, and not simply does the body matter, but the type of worlds that we create um, can garner productions of knowledge. So when we're thinking about who gets to produce knowledge and whose knowledge is an authority, oftentimes those traditions of authorities have been bound. If we're thinking in, in terms of bodies. Uh, have been bound to white bodies, particularly mm-hmm. white male straight bodies, um, as they have been in courts and classrooms and churches and in curriculum. And and what my Black Pentecostalism uh, taught me is that that I that we the world that we create uh, is, is not just disordered, uh, or or disorderly, uh, or just simply chaotic. You know, but that in some sense, there is knowledge within a disorder. There's knowledge within the chaos. There's something to be gained within that. Mm. But then also, you know, I think, I think in my Pentecostalism, it, it, were, it was the places that I also learned how to run. You know, you can, if you can shout, you know, if you can shout long enough, you don't have to deal with how problematic you become. You know, and oftentimes, you know, my Black Pentecostal church that I grew up in is very much rooted in patriarchy. And, and these kind of ways of thinking about uh, black women and black LGBTQ that are not oftentimes uh, inviting and inclusive uh, and things like that. And so I, I learned great things, but also I learned how to evade you know, myself and evade others in the name of performance, in the name of mm-hmm. shouting and praise breaks uh, mm-hmm. and things like that, in the name of preaching. That, that in some sense, the spirit mattered more than, 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 than our lived experiences. And so whenever we as people of faith believe that, and particularly Christian, believe that uh, that the spiritual part of ourselves matter more at the expense of who we become in our own bodies and our lived experiences, then oftentimes we can invade when we become the worst of ourselves and we can protect conditions, you know, as I write about in my book, where there are bodies that, you know, are meant to be loved and bodies that are meant to be hated. So I learned the best of the Christian life within my Pentecostalism. Uh, but also i learned the worst of our tradition but so much of my orientation you know as a thinker um as a as a preacher uh you know when i preach i'm very much pentecostal in the way that i think about you know the practice of preaching and the way that i approach the text and 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 what people call the sanctified imagination being able to you know allow text to move and maneuver and dance around um and allowing in some sense uh, our voice to become the voice of God, and so I learned that in my Pentecostalism. But also, you know, I learned that that you know the Black church is not a liberating space for everybody, mm-hmm. um, but oftentimes can be the very reproduction of oppression um, and marginalization mm-hmm. that we exit from uh, the world and enter to within the church.
1: Yeah. We'll definitely unpack a little bit more about bodies a little later and also about some of the ways that oppression manifests in lots of different ways, in, even including in a place like the Black Church. But the one thing I just wanted to say, too, is that the way you talk about sort of being oriented in a Pentecostal mm-hmm. way reminds me a lot of what ashan talks about. I mean, I don't even think ashan believes in God. I think he's an atheist. I think he's as agnostic. As, as, as yeah, agnostic. But yeah, yeah. nonetheless... He still describes himself as Pentecostal because of the Pentecostal orientation that he has in his life. So I, I, love, yeah. I love that way of thinking about it. I, you know, mm-hmm. I had pretty significant experiences in, in a very rural Pentecostal church uh, growing up, and I still to this day really feel oriented to that as well, as much as mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the theology I've, I've stripped away from uh, and quote unquote deconstructed it. But I still, in a lot of ways, feel oriented to that sort of movement of the spirit and and sensitivity to the spirit. Um, You talk early on in the book about how white supremacy is infectious, Uh, not only in every aspect of life, but it can Mm -hmm. even be internalized by black, indigenous and other people of color. Sort of like when you were sort of swallowed up by white evangelicalism, right? And you talk about mm-hmm. your whole story uh, being involved in that world of white evangelicalism. Can you talk a little bit about how white supremacy affects everyone, even in moments where here you are, a black person in a white evangelical space, and you start to internalize some of that white evangelicalism
0: and white supremacy? hmm yeah, I think I think when we first started talking about white supremacy and, and in some sense of whiteness, like we have to first and foremost talk, say that whiteness is not a given. It, it, it oftentimes is a goal and it's a goal that has been created. Um, and 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 whiteness is not like like it's not just this kind of abstract principle, uh, but it's it's woven into the very ways that people plan cities. It's woven into the very histories that we inherit. It's woven into the ways that people make court decision, and even right now when you talk mm-hmm. about you know jury selection. Uh, is woven into the law and, and, and American society. It's woven into uh, the ways that people have even talked about orthodoxy and, and, and theology and morality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think we have to realize that like white whiteness and white supremacy wants to be totalizing, which i when i which I mean that like it wants to infect every single, mm. infect and affect every single aspect. Of our lives while also being adaptive and invisible. And that's the tough thing when people are talking about white supremacy, because as many writers scholars note, that people tend to think that white supremacy is just about the violence, you know, the outward aspect mm-hmm. of violence, without thinking about violence in a sense of conditions. Violence is not just a construct. That one believes and therefore acts upon, but violence is also a condition where one is protected from certain things, while another is affected by it. Mm. And so, oftentimes, when we think about white supremacy. We have to think in a language. I, th- I think Eddie Glaude has done a really good job of this in Democracy of Black, when he's talking about the value gap. Simply, what lives you know are, are loved, you know, and valued and cherished, and what pain is listened to and, and sought to be healed, and what people are not. And if we take an honest look at our society and oftentimes our churches um, and even our personal experiences, oftentimes we have been led to believe that white people and what white people have created and and say and think and do and how they name the world uh, is the center of God's creation. Uh, and should be the center of what we aspire to. So when I talk about Clemson, I'll t- and I use the language of wages in the first chapter, mm. you know, it, it is very particular when I use that metaphor, of wages. You know, in some sense, the wages. I, think, oh, I forgot who wrote about that. The wages of whiteness. You know, I didn't use that language or even cite that book, but uh, wages was a very important grounding metaphor for me when I think about whiteness and white supremacy in that there's always a cost and there's always a price to pay. Mm. And usually for us who are black and rural and Southern coming from places that I grew up in, the cost is oftentimes ourselves and our identity and the Mm. art and the creativity and the beauty of the lives and the worlds we constructed. And the price we pay is often the price of our silence and our assimilation, Mm. where to be accepted in that place, we have to, you can only be a certain type of Blackness. You can only be a certain type of your own identity. You have to make your identity and what you bring to the world palatable to the white conscious and to the white taste. And so why white supremacy, you know, uh, to, to the point of trying, in some sense, of, of being reductionistic. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to be reductionistic, but in some sense, we we can and we should be. That white supremacy is just simply, you know, white people matter more. I was literally talking to one of my friends the other day, and we were talking about Halloween, that I was raised in Pentecostal, uh, and and we never celebrated Halloween. So I have my son and, and everything. So uh, I was talking with my friend. I was like, yo, like it was like a dream, like hundreds of people out here handing out candy and things like that. And, and, and then we just talking about like, yo, this is like what we wanted as kids. But then if you think about the images and this is why visual culture and thinking about images and critically examining in images and mm. art and literature is so important because so much of images and literature and art is representative of ideas of beauty and aspiration and and so we we kind of start critically examining these images and we was like yo we was young halloween always took place in white suburbia like the images that we saw on tv Mm. was like in white neighborhoods Mm -hmm. Mm trick-or-treating in white places hocus pocus white neighborhood halloween town Mm -hmm. white neighborhoods so we have to critically examine these images and and at the end of the day what we were desiring was whiteness you know we was desiring halloween Mm -hmm. you know but if we you know critically examine that like why halloween couldn't take place where we live so we so we like desired it where we were at so you know, I think I think that that we have to talk about white supremacy in this in that sense of desire and aspiration and, and the price and the cost. And when we talk about white evangelicalism and religion it's even more because, you know, people have brought God on the side of whiteness and, and protecting white political, social, theological and even epistemological dominance. And so when I went into the white space, particularly playing football and then getting involved in white churches, white supremacy pretty much was me distancing and valuing where I come from in the world that we built and me aspiring to be successful in this white space that could, that would give me protection, that would give me rewards, and that would give me success.
1: This sort of relates to the conversation that you talk a little bit later on in the book about the world of racial reconciliation. But there certainly was a disillusionment that you eventually have with that world of, wow, it really is not as radical as it needs to be. So can you talk Mm -hmm. about the difference between white people's conception of racial reconciliation and black liberation? So what's the difference between those two? Because I think this conversation or the what we just were talking about
0: really relates to that type of conversation. Oh, yeah, indeed. Indeed. And I want and I want to say, I think a sort of that we should aspire to be reconciled to one another. I I want to say that I think, you know, as some as people who 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 story find meaning in the story of Jesus, you know, as people who call ourselves Christians and, and others like like God, I do believe God desires that 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 in some senses, as the womanist would say, that that life should be healed and whole. Mm. That that we should love everybody. As uh as, as I was walking right in uh in search of our mo- woman's uh, mother's gardens, when she goes on to define this idea of a uh, womanism, uh, where she talks about you know woman where she takes womanish and mm-hmm. and redefines it where 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 this idea she where she loves the folk you know and mm-hmm. and, and she's she's audacious, mm-hmm. um and, and she loves herself uh and and at the end when she puts that that joint at the end regardless and i think that's very powerful brother that that idea of you know regardless like like love regardless uh uh hope regardless that 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 we should in some sense be the type of people that 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 try and create conditions of being together that is like regardless that, that regardless of who you are you have a place here that regardless of of where you come from, regardless of your orientation, regardless of the way you 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 come into the world or exit the world, regardless regardless of the way you mature uh, and, and grow up, like you should have a place here that 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 you are that we are serious. She ends that joint that that we are serious about taking care of one another, and I think we should be concerned with reconciliation, but we should not allow reconciliation to become cold words simply for assimilation mm. into whiteness. And I think that many times, especially if you think thinking historically about the traditions of reconciliation among Christians, particularly I'm thinking in America and among white evangelicalism and those who are adjacent, these traditions of reconciliation always in some sense were bound to the logics the litmus and the language of whiteness and white evangelicalism so if we're thinking about the 90s and the rise of these uh, uh conferences that came together to pray together or i mean it was happening before then mm-hmm. you see kind of mm-hmm. billy graham and martin the king you can come pray here you know but i don't want to give up whiteness you totally. know and things like that we can we can be together you know or even in, in the 70s where you see uh, in the theological academy. Uh, And even in in, in American institutions, educational institutions where where people are starting to take their reality seriously as forms of knowledge production um, and and saying that we, our, our lives, our lived experiences are authorities. There is a subjective authority in which we have power, we have dignity, we have agency that we should embody and that should be studied and critically examined within the academy. People were OK with them saying that, you know, as James Cone wrote about in his book, said I wasn't going to tell nobody. They were they were OK with us learning in the academy as long as we didn't ask any questions. Right. right. You know, that had to do with our black reality. And I think this is many of the limits of reconciliation language is that oftentimes reconciliation language doesn't take many times doesn't take seriously enough or critically examine enough the ways in which whiteness works as the framing of what reconciliation should look mm. like. And so when I thought about in that chapter, particularly when I was preaching, yeah, so I used to be this dude that was like praising of reconciliation of a certain type of re- racial reconciliation, particularly the racial reconciliation that was, was cold word for assimilation. Mm. Um, and I was teaching a home group on John Piper's bloodline. Uh, I was that person who was the black conservative charismatic dude um, in that in the white evangelical space who could learn the language and, and preach and teach the language, but then take into account the deeper kind of frameworks and ideologies at work that shape how I embody and thought about reconciliation. So when I started to, to when I, when I changed and you know started to ask better questions, as Cohen would talk about, when I started to ask better questions, many times those people who were more, most concerned about racial reconciliation were the people who were least concerned about what this idea meant to us as Black people mm. or meant for us as Black people. So thinking about anti-racism in 2020, Toronto Burke in You're Your Best Thing asked a very important question. She says that many people, the the, the the language of the day was anti-racism, but many people did not talk about Black humanity and what this does to us. Mm. And so in the reality of racial reconciliation. Many people talk about racial reconciliation, but it's just simply, how can white people become better at the expense of our Black Mm. humanity and our Black reality, particularly at the expense of Black women and Black LGBTQ uh, and other marginalized communities? Um, How can we feel better about who we are? Uh, How can we make more progress? Uh, in in, uh, uh, in our society while not losing white dollars and, and things like that, how can we progress without actually paying a price that will actually cost mm. uh, that would actually cost us in a sense of it will cost us in the ways we tell these stories and orient ourselves toward ourselves and the world. And so man when when I started to speak differently and bring in different voices um, in that space bro, there was another black dude in the space bro that I I actually bruh, I did not even write about because I didn't even want to like I didn't even want to go there bro I, I, I might write about it in, in, in the next one you know but in that space bro there was a black dude who was black conservative just like I was until I started to change and I would assume he remains a black conservative to this day mm-hmm. um, where he was used in some sense we both, were used as weapons and always mm. as weapons against black people to quail Black liberation and things like that and, and more liberative practices and better ways of thinking and, and knowing, he was used as a weapon, you know, to, to, to stifle any type of conversation or to only allow this conversation, racial, racial reconciliation to be palatable to white sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And so when I begin to change and others begin to change, particularly Black women in that space, Uh, We change from talking about racial reconciliation to talking about racial justice, but then that even doesn't do enough, you know, Mm. because racial justice, in some sense, we want to use that language and that language should be a part of our framework, but racial justice, in some sense, It depends so much on a change in policy and the orientation of our society that we can't just simply lean on the language of racial justice. Because even when people talk about racial justice, it's still centered on Mm -hmm. white people progressing and getting better in society. Mm -hmm. Now, we should speak of language of abolition of conditions Mm. that destroy us and and, and harm us and does not make us whole and well, we should speak of language of dismantling, you know, we should allow those language or, or reconstruction, those type of language and frameworks to be a part of what we think about in our ideas of racial justice and policing and, and economics and healthcare mm-hmm. and and whatever. You know, we should think about those things and those should be our ideas of racial justice. But Mm -hmm. also, you know, we should also lean on thinking about black humanity and creativity, Mm. because beyond just simply racial reconciliation and racial justice, if we indeed bring on language of abolition, deconstruction and reimagination and reconstruction, I think moving also to black humanity and creativity, allows us to first start from Black history and our Mm. material realities Mm -hmm. and what we have made of the world. So I'm thinking of the ways in which Black feminisms think about the standpoint of Blackness and the intersections of our lives and the ways in which, you know, those realities intersect, not just simply as something to talk about politically, but they intersect in ways that's creative and beautiful and, and not just the disorderly and chaotic, mm-hmm. uh, but like Sadia Hartman would say, you know, that many people, they miss the beauty, Because they only see the disorder Mm. and they don't see the ways in which we create life and turn bare need into Mm. an arena of elaboration. Mm. So to turn toward the interiority of our lives, to turn toward the material reality of our lives, the ways we created worlds, allows us, you know, in some sense to think about those questions first and foremost from those who are harmed the most, Mm. not from those who are doing the harm Mm. So I'm thinking about this in a sort of type of tension and racial justice and reconciliation and and Black humanity and Mm -hmm. creativity, Mm -hmm. thinking particularly with uh, Black literature and and Elizabeth Alexander in her joint, The Black Interior. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly about ways we can look at the world that that Black people have created, whether that is around the car table, around the dinner table, in the church, like I tried to do in my church. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily talk about theory, But what I was doing in my book is I was weaving a sort of theorizing about black life and black love and our Mm. failure and our complexity that made us human. Mm -hmm. That was beyond, Mm -hmm. as Toni Morrison would say, the white gaze, Mm -hmm. not trying to think about the dominant constructions of whiteness, though I do. I weave that within my book. But I wanted to turn toward our black lives and see, okay, what do we have to offer? And what I found out is that racial reconciliation does not go far enough, Mm. nor does it ask the right questions or, in some sense, begin in the right places.
1: Mm. That
0: is a word right there. In the middle of the book,
1: you talk about not only your own personal encounters as a Black man with cops, but also the stories of others. And because of the similarities between the story of Black people being pulled over and threatened by the cops and Jesus's own personal story, How do you think that Jesus is a black man pulled over and threatened by the cops?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, bro. Great question. So for me, I've been shaped particularly by like M. Sean Copeland. We're both shaped Mm -hmm. by Sean Copeland Mm -hmm. and, and, and others. And, and I think, I think when we're thinking about theology and metaphors and symbolism, Um, I I think the symbol, particularly, I I love Dr. Christina Cleveland, what she's doing uh, uh, or or whatnot in these Black Madonnas. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's doing brilliant work uh, around the intersection of Blackness and theology. And I think I, I lean on the language of symbolism, particularly thinking about where Jesus came from, what was his experience in the world? And in some sense, how did the world relate to him? How did the world see him? And, and how did Jesus respond to such sight and what in some sense happened in the end? So I'm thinking about uh, being seen, being conscious of being seen, you know, so you're being seen, uh, you're being conscious of being seen. And how do you respond to how we all the, all these ways of people seeing and not seeing or rendering invisible or not invisible can help us understand better or open up? Uh, in conversation with ways that people have thought about Jesus um, in the past, how can we continue to ask those questions out of our lived experiences as black folk, uh, as it relates to theology. And so when I think about Jesus, and and, 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 and the ways in which black men and women uh, uh, have thought about thought about Jesus, but it also, you know, I know black LGBTQ, I may have been thinking about uh, uh, Pamela Lightsey's a woman is queer theology. Mm -hmm. Our lives matter. I mean, the ways in which she's thinking about Jesus and and blackness is this idea of where he comes from. So he he's raised in the poor side of Nazareth. So we're thinking about Jesus, uh, his lived experiences uh, is coming from a marginalized community. So that is we as black folk have been marginalized within our society. Jesus and his society is treated as a second class citizen. We are all we are also treated as second class mm. citizens. Jesus mm. is living around a people who have a historical consciousness, also a political and social consciousness, of creating life within the regiment of an empire, uh, without allowing the empire in some sense to destroy them. So they create life, synagogue life. You know, they they, they have their sacred texts. You know, they have their productions of knowledge that's beyond uh, the empire. They they have their ways. They build life and synagogue life around political, social, economic and religious life. They build life. So Jesus was very much caught up in that type of world building uh, and world making, particularly that black feminists speak of black worlds um, and things like that. But also the ways in which the empire the, the, of Rome, but also those the the, the religious uh, many, many, not all, but many of the religious leaders and those in power responded to him, you know, in skepticism uh, that they believed the best about themselves and the worst about him. And so Black people are oftentimes, uh, whether we're thinking about Trayvon, or we think about mm. Mike Brown, or we thinking about Sandra Bland, or we thinking about Amar Arbery, that oftentimes, or, or, or Brianna Taylor, or even Micaiah Bryant, that people believe that Black people should be perfect in order to remain mm. uh, alive and to be cherished and to be loved. That oftentimes our society, first and foremost, view us not with sacredness, but they oftentimes view us through skepticism. And that was Jesus' experience as well. Mm. Um, But also in the ways in which Jesus died, that Jesus died, as many theologians speak, at the hands of the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, you know, I think as as people have talked about, we can't just simply make one to one because our societies are so different. But there are ways to think about, as as critical theory uh, says, that if we think about intertextuality and the ways that texts can be read alongside one another Mm -hmm. and that meaning can be generated, we can think about these histories Uh, being read alongside one another as well. Uh, We can broaden in the textuality, think about uh, the life of Jesus and the life of black folk being read alongside one another, Mm. being able to open up new ways of thinking about our world been open up to think about ways of doing theology and thinking about God and thinking about the world and thinking about ourselves, mm-hmm. that can be opened up. So I think that meaning can be generated by reading Black life alongside the life of Jesus, mm. um, but not just simply ri- being being killed at the hands of the state, uh, but also being resurrected and realizing that, life, that the empire does not have the last say mm. uh, on our lives, but that there is held out for all humanity, the reality of better. So, in traditional terms of of, of this "quote unquote" traditional terms of, of, of theology, the ways in which various communities thought about this kind of chronological uh, or linear, uh, linear type of ideas of theology of, of, of incarnation, uh, uh, lived experience, death. Burial resurrection. Uh, I mean, it can work and holds promise, but also we need to think about other ways of thinking about Jesus' life and his experience, particular marginalization mm-hmm. and oppression, but also of liberation and wholeness. The ways in which uh, womanist and queer theologians speak about Jesus' embodiment and his gender performance, mm-hmm. and I think uh, that, that we we have to think about Black life in that sense as well. And I and I'll never forget this, bro. Uh that there was uh, uh Anthony Reddy, uh wonderful theologian uh uh in the UK. He told this story. I think it was Anthony Reddy, if I'm not mistaken. I may be wrong. He told the story. This theologian, this theologian was given, and he tells the story of another. So I think it's passed down stories. This is just a really good story. So it's passed around and passed down. But this theologian is given a talk on God and blackness the theologian finishes her talk on God and blackness and then this young person stands up so they they it's in it's in the majority white space to give them the lecture on God and blackness and the young person stand up it's like yo when God when God saved me uh uh when I when I became saved you know I stopped being black I became Christian and Mm. anybody that read my book they know that I believe that as well that when I went down in the waters in the white church and came mm-hmm, back up, mm-hmm. you know, I was made white as snow to use that language made white as snow. Uh, and I was not black, but I was Christian. And so this young person stands up and say, when I became, uh, you know, when I became Christian, you know, I stopped being black. That's what matters most is me being a Christian. That's my identity. I don't identify as a black person. I identify as a Christian. And the crowd goes in uproar and, and, and the theologian looks, and, and the crowd is going to uproar, they're clapping and they amen and, and then the crowd dies down. And the theologian just simply asks one question. When did blackness become so bad that god must save you from it
1: mm. and
0: so for me when i think about the connection between jesus and blackness i think that there is a life-giving connection not something that we must run from mm. but something that must be destroyed
1: somebody's mm. life side by side getting The first even to compete with what exists between you and me you have this great line in the book about how white supremacy has not only systematically oppressed people of color but also has harmed the souls of people of color mm. on mm. the inverse of that I- I'm sure there are many ways that your own body has sort of healed from white supremacy too. So in what ways have you experienced your body healing from white supremacy, not just being harmed by white supremacy, but actually your body doing the inverse of that, healing from it?
0: Yeah, first and foremost, I had to move into a different place, bro. So, you know, when I left that space, I knew Mm. that I could not remain there and be healed and whole. Mm. I just could not remain. I I needed to get out. I needed to leave. I needed to find... Uh I needed to find a better paradise. I needed to find a better home. And so, first and foremost, how did I heal? Was how me and my family we removed ourselves from that situation because you know, oftentimes bitterness set in when you don't have any alternatives, you know, and you're just constantly reminded, and it's just for anybody who's hurt or marginalized, you know, whenever we don't have any alternatives, all we are reminded of continually is what others did to us, say about us and what they tried to make us. And so when we don't have alternatives, all we're doing is just being reminded once again, you know, that we're less than, that we don't have anything to offer to the world, that, that this person is most important. So we had to leave. And so when I went back to the Black church, uh, and actually for a time there, we, we just kind of left, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and things like that, I was kind of meandering around but, but when I left, you know, it was me taking back my power to say that I don't need you. I don't need this space. We don't need this space. We will not give the best of our lives and our monies and our time and our talent and our treasure to white folk to build mm-hmm. their white supremacist kingdom. That just ain't going to cut it, you know, so we needed to leave. But then also I needed to take on better voices. So all of these books that you see in my office right now, our office, all these books that you see. This is only from 2017, Damn. literally all of this is literally from just 2017, because I realized that, you know, I just could not leave the white supremacist structure uh, or, or whatnot, but I had to give up the white supremacist mm. ideology. And so the way that I had to do that was to take on better voices or to use the language you know, of sociology and philosophy and theology. I had to take on a different epistemology mm. because I don't believe that those who are oppressed, you know, that their liberation is found in the epistemology of the oppressor. Mm. It just can't happen because for the oppressors, for the marginalizers, for those who are empowered, they will always utilize progress to their own benefit to evade the demands of justice, because in some sense to deal with injustice to deal with marginalization means that they would have to give up their centeredness Mm -hmm. their ideas of their own purity and morality and their own elevated ideas of who they are in the world and so i had to leave but i had to take on better voices so that was me healing was taking back my voice or like Lloyd. And uh, and Sister Outsider, she has this beautiful uh, essay entitled To Transformation of Silence into Language. Mm. And she ends that essay with, there are so many silences to be broken. So for me, breaking the silence of how I felt was me healing. Mm. You know, and I didn't always respond in the right way, you know, not to myself or to others, or to to people around me. You know, I, I I didn't always respond. This ain't no hero story. Like, mm-hmm. you know, white people did what they did. I changed. I became a, you know, a radical and things like that. No, bro. There there are still parts of me, bro, that 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 I'm still trying to make sense of in that moment, you know, but you know, I had the courage to leave. So mm-hmm. that's a part of the complex story is that I didn't always respond in the right way. I oftentimes, you know, I hurt people in the process. I lost friendships in the process because, you know, I, I, at times, you know, I wasn't trying to listen to people, you know, and sometimes I felt like some people, you know, they didn't want what's best for me. So like, you can't, you got to just navigate that in your own life. You know, who do you listen to? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's oftentimes a kind of living question, you know, a living Mm -hmm. lesson and and things like that. So I I oftentimes ruin some uh, friendships and burn some bridges, sadly. Because I was trying to get free and, I was, and, and freedom, you know, is, is a messy process, you know, and, and healing is a messy process. So it's, it took me leaving, taking on better voices, but also, man, me healing is also trying to write and construct and to do whatever I can to save people from going through what I went through mm. and becoming who I became. Um, And that's why I wrote my book so honestly, bro, Mm -hmm, is -hmm. because I want people, if they're there, if they're not there, if they're beyond it, to meet my book wherever they are, to begin their journey of healing, but also to save themselves from so much failure Mm -hmm. and loss. And so that's a part of healing. Because like Tony Morrison said, if if you're free then you need to free somebody else. And I would say, if you're trying to be healed and whole, uh, you need to try and help mm-hmm. somebody else become healed and whole or keep them from being wounded. Mm-hmm. You know, like our parents would say, you know, I, I, I warn you because I love you, you know, and things like that. So that's, that's probably kind of the ways that I feel myself healing and not even being concerned. Like my first and foremost question is not like white people, you know, right. what do white people learn and what do white people think? But mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there, there, there's something liberating and healing about realizing that like we have something to offer and our worlds are real and that there's so much beauty to be explored and there's so many lessons to be learned from other people as well you know that, that I, don't, I don't have to I don't have to relate to the world as if like it's like I'm losing something or trying to you know grab bag and things like that and just trying to ex- exploit in ways that I was exploited uh but I can be ordinary and be mm-hmm. human mm-hmm. And, and and find other ways to be ordinarily human and, and pay attention to the ways we and others are ordinarily human and lean into that mm-hmm. and love it and embrace it. And bro, that's for me, bro, like being a writer, being a minister, being a husband and father, being mm-hmm. that, like that's that's how I heal, mm-hmm. like living life on our own terms.
1: Love that. That's a beautiful word. You also have this great line in the book where you say that theology is not necessarily an abstract exercise, but it's also a way to dream of the future to which God calls us. What is the future that God calls us to? Uh, what
0: does that future look like? Yeah. Now, you know, everybody got their ideas of God's future. You know that. We're both in seminary, so... <laughs> Uh, there, there's an unending, uh, mm. unending answer to that, uh, to that question, but the better way I would answer that, bro, is what do I hope to accomplish in the future that I think God holds out for us? And mm. I don't know what God's future holds, you know, in some sense. Uh, so I probably would revise that sentence maybe. Uh, but what can I do to become as Octavia Butler tells her student the answer? Uh, to the questions that we have and to the problems that ail us, uh, it probably is June Jordan who I love, and I've quoted this before, "I am black alive and looking back at you, uh, and then also Lucille Clifton, won't you come celebrate with me with the kind of life I've made? Mm. Then Jesus says in 1010, 10, John 10:10, 10, 10, that the enemy that the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come." that you may have life and life to the full. Mm. So how does that relate to our becoming answer to that question or its solutions to the problems, or in some sense, joining God in the future that God has for us. I want to see black people alive, cherished, loved. So when I write, I'm working on an essay, literally right now, working on an essay, actually just finished an essay entitled Hallelujah Anyhow. Uh, working on another essay entitled "On On, on Card Tables, Caprices, and Sierras." Mm. Uh, uh, going back home to to like, like talk to my cousins and talk. I want to write about black boys and girls in the South where I'm from on the card table. What the card table meant to them? Mm. What did their caprices meant to them? What did their uh, sierras mean to them? What does the box Chevy mean to them? I want to write about that. Mm. So I want to see them black alive and looking back at you the way that uh, Elizabeth Alexander, that's actually where I got that quote from. Mm. Uh, Elizabeth Alexander, people should read this essay, The Trayvon Generation. I quoted in my book. Brilliant, beautiful essay. I want to see us black alive. That's a part of the future I think God holds out for us. I also want to celebrate and I, won't, I don't want to just be alone in that celebration. Mm. So won't you come celebrate with me with the kind of life I've made? Mm. So I want people whatever work I'm doing as a husband, as a father, as a minister, as a thinker, as a writer, as a pastor, whatever, whatever, as a student, whatever work I'm doing as a friend, I want people to admire the life that I've made Mm. because that life was not made by myself. There are no self-made people. Mm -hmm. There's no self-made person. We all for good or for ill are oftentimes both product of our experiences and our environments, but products of the type of people and things we are engaged in. Mm -hmm. So the type of life that I create and construct, I want people to be able to celebrate that. That's what God, I think, Mm -hmm. has for us, to celebrate the type of life we build so that won't you, the you in that sentence would not just be simply one demographic, But the you would always be expanding you and you and you and you and you. Won't you all come celebrate with me as I celebrate us with the type of life each one of us have made and help one another become one another become. Mm. But then lastly, to go back to the biblical text, I want, I think, you know, and I think God, the future that God has for us and particularly what I'm trying to do as a writer, I wanted to see what did I steal? What did I kill? what did I destroy? And how can I be honest and vulnerable about that and and, and real about that? What was taken from me, taken from us? What was killed? What was killed in us? What was destroyed? And I want to take all of that and try to take all of that. And I want to say, but there is life. Mm. It might've been defeated. It might've been destroyed. It might've been disfigured. But there's life. Life is still possible. Mm. There can be life-givingness in our stories. And I think, as Jason, Jason Reynolds said the other day, bro, he says, if I can pray at the altar of creativity, then I know that there is something waiting at the end for me. And for me, it was shouting, it was praying, it was witnessing, it was critiquing, it was sitting and dancing mm. and altar alter God of Jesus, of blackness, of our lives, waiting long enough, bro, to see what was at the end for me. And I think that is the future that God has for us mm. and my part in it. So yeah, that's, that's, that's all I got for you, bro.
1: Last question, Dante, how can listeners get connected to you and your work?
0: Well, uh, just hit me up on my website, DanteCStewart.com. Or, or on social media at Stuart dante c um i'm always available you know life is a little bit busier though mm-hmm. uh, so i will say that life is got much little busier. ones running around yeah 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 life is like when you get a book and and it goes out in the world you know it gets a lot busier and being a student and and being in ministry and and family like you said it, it gets a little bit busy but i try as best i can to hit everybody back as much as i can um, so just hit me up. All my social medias are at Stuart Dante C. Last name, first name, middle, initial. Yeah, so that's how you can get in contact with me. Hit me up. Where can people get the book? Anywhere books are sold, but particularly support your local bookstores. Um, I am, I don't know when this is coming out, um, but if you can, support the Book Tavern in Augusta, Georgia. Mm. The Book Tavern in Augusta, Georgia. Support them. They have my book. Buy as many copies as you can. Support my local bookstore. Secondly, Square Books support them. Mahogany Books support them. Strand Bookstore support them. Uh, 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 Book Passage support them. So I want to support every single last bookstore that has opened up space for me, and I want to challenge—not challenge—that's kind of pastorly. That's kind of, that's kind of mm-hmm. if we was on Sunday and that we was challenging people for, for volunteering, but in some sense, I want to challenge. I want to call you, call you to, you know, just one book. Uh, if if you buy one book, you know, from that bookstore, from one of those bookstores, both to support them, to support me. But also, I do think that this book is, is a really good book and, and, and very relevant to so mm-hmm. many
1: mm-hmm.
0: conversations we're having today. But if you already got the book, buy one copy for another person um, that you think can benefit from it as well. Lovely. Well,
1: I loved it. It is absolutely incredible. You are such a gifted storyteller. I, it, I just can't say enough about how much I loved it. And also, thank you for chatting a little bit more about it. You were one of those people that every time you talk, it sounds like you're preaching a sermon. You just like get oh, into man. that mode and you're so great at man, it. That could
0: be a good thing or a bad thing. That bro. could be that a be bad thing, thing but bad. it's <laughs> always
1: a good thing for you. I love it. Every time I hear you talk, you just like get into this preacher mode and it's amazing. And I love it so thank much. You, and I just want to say to Dante that I love your blackness. Like it comes oh, out in the you, book. Bro. It comes out um, when, when you uh, are having these conversations and I just want to celebrate all of that you've done and celebrate your blackness. This is just an incredible moment I'm sure in your life. And so thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about it.
0: Bless you, bro. Much love to you, bro. From your.
1: you